page 981 in your Black Bibles. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is God's word. We're beginning a new series today, and I'm calling it Following Christ in the Suburbs. Following Christ in the Suburbs. We live in a specific place, in a specific culture, in a specific time, and there are certain challenges that come along with that. There are certain challenges that come along with living where we do, living in the time that we do. If we want to follow Christ completely, fully holy, what does that look like? How do we do it here? It's going to be different than the big city. It's going to be different than some other places in the world. We can't just assume that where we live is perfect and easy and good. We must assume that there are going to be challenges with it because the way to follow Christ, the, always the way to follow Christ is through the cross. Always. What does that look like where we live? And we are going to start this morning by asking the question about our justification. What is our trouble with self-justification? But before we, before we get to it, let's pray together. God, I'm, uh, my heart is full after singing and worshiping with your people. Thank you for blessing this church with resources, with hearts who long to worship and honor you. God, with the opportunity in this country to reflect your glorious grace openly, proudly. We do pray, God, that you would continue to bless us, though, that we need your help. We live in a, as Bill said earlier, a, a difficult time, an ever-increasingly uh, um, difficult a place that we live, challenges that we face in work life and home life and school life. And we need your help. We need to have our eyes open. We need to have our sin uncovered. And we need your grace to bring us on through. And I, saw, and I pray in this series first that you would be with us, that you would show us the things that we need to see. But this morning especially that you would uncover your word, your glorious word for us yet again. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a question. Would you get into heaven? You die, I'm sorry to say it. You jump on the escalator all the way up to the top. You walk in front of those pearly gates. And there is St. Peter, as they say, holding a big book. And he looks at you and he says, so you want to get into heaven? 
You say, yeah, I do. He says, okay, all you must do is answer this simple question. Why do you deserve it? Tell me what you did with your time on earth to get you entrance to this place into everlasting joy and happiness. If that happened to you, what would be your answer? And you think it would work. Would you get in? Now, I do love living where I do. I live in Haverhill, just right up the road in Bradford. Many of you live elsewhere in the surrounding area in Lawrence and North Andover and Atkinson, Lowell, Andover, and so on. Now, what unites, as we were just talking about, what unites these places is that they are not Boston. They are not the major city, the metropolis. They are, so we are, these cities under a broad heading, the suburbs. We live here for varying reasons, but we all benefit from what they provide, pretty decent schools and cheap living, towns and homes with lots of space and yards, seemingly endless amounts of goods that we can buy from places like Home Depot and Target and Market Basket. And the suburbs, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're with me, are, are quiet. We were just in the city this week when we were, my daughter was at Children's Hospital. It is loud down there. It's bustling and loud. We live in the suburbs for a reason. Paul at one point says to the Thessalonians, you should live quiet and peaceful lives. You might as well have said move to the suburbs. There's much to love about living here. We come here truly, I think, looking for a better life for us and for our kids. But we must ask quickly after that, Is it all good? Does suburban life make for perfect happiness and satisfaction? I think you probably know this, but that is not the case. Book after book, study after study is telling us that we, even in the suburbs, are more stressed out and anxious than we ever have been. No matter how far we seem to progress, no matter how good our schools get, no matter how deeply we renovate our homes, no matter how organic our produce is, no matter how far we travel up the corporate ladder, no matter how successful our kids become, we do not seem to be getting happier. So the more you work, the harder you try You cannot seem to find the pathway to, to use a spiritual term, heaven. Yes, heaven to come, but even heaven now on earth. It seems to me that all humans are trying to do one thing, get in. Get in. Paul says at the end of our passage today, by any means possible, I desire to attain the resurrection from the dead. What is he talking about? He wants to get in. He wants to get out of this life and get to heaven, get into heaven. And so do we all. And this is central to all religious and even non-religious stories. You must find You must live your life in a certain way so that you can get into that place, whatever it is. Whatever it is varies, of course. It could be heaven or a clique or a career or a country club, whatever it is. What matters is that we are trying to do it. And we do it by trying to prove ourselves. To prove, in a sense, our self-worth. Peter asks you, why do you deserve 
to get in. Rushing into our minds comes all the good things that we have done. Has it been enough? Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Whether or not we know it, this feeling points to a deep reality in the universe. We don't try to prove ourselves because we are crazy. We do it because there's something true in it. There's something transcendent in this pursuit. Deep down, we know there's an in. And our question must be, what do we need to do to get access? I need to tell you the Bible says that one way brings life, but one brings death. Which one do you want? Which one do you want? We get, are in Philippians 3 this morning. In our series, we're going to be jumping around to all sorts of texts, but today we are in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 9. We're going to walk through it with three points. One, we all live to get in. Two, living to get in is the problem. And three, how to get in without trying. One, we all live to get in. We all live to get in. So we need to backfill a little bit. If you read that passage, what you have to understand is that Paul is, has been explaining the gospel. He's been expanding the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And he's at this point in the text where he's now warning these new baby Christians. He's warning the Philippian church about some teachers who are coming in and they are teaching what he would consider to be contrary to the gospel. They are teaching a contrary gospel of Christ. And so he calls them at one point a pack of roving and vicious wild dogs, or as they are better known, Judaizers. Judaizers. Judaizers did not reject the gospel exactly. They believed that Jesus died for sinners and that you had to believe in him to get to heaven. However, they did something equally as pernicious as bad. You don't just get the gospel wrong by, by missing pieces of it, by not getting all of it just right, by pulling out parts. You can also get the gospel wrong by adding to it, by adding to it, and that is what they did. They taught that to be saved, you needed Jesus plus circumcision. Kind of weird to, to our ears, but that's what they believed. Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Equals salvation. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is wrong. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. That equals salvation. So look at Philippians 3.3. 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and now listen, and put no confidence in the flesh. To put no confidence in the flesh simply means that Christians do not base their salvation on the works that they do, on the good that they do. Now, the Judaizers thought that that was getting circumcised. That sets you apart. Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. But in that law, in that time, it could have been anything external acts of religious observance. For them, circumcision was the outward display that you were a law follower, that you were Jewish. And Paul says, that is done now. 
Put no confidence in your law following and your self-justification. Put your confidence only in Jesus. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. Now, at this point, I like to think that the Judaizers are reading this, and they start laughing. They start cackling. Wait a minute. What, what are you telling me? You don't have to do anything to earn your way before God? You don't have to obey the law to get in. You don't have to get circumcised. Come on. And honestly, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say this? What gives you the right? We wonder. We, we bet that you are just a terrible law follower, that you're not even a Jew by, by heritage or, or even by practice to begin with. And so, of course, you would say this. It's easy to say, I don't play the game if you don't have any game to begin with. What is Paul's response? I guess you do not know who I was. I was the Tom Brady of Jewishness. Philippians 3, 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul was the Tom Brady of Jewishness, of law following the goat, the greatest of all time. He says, you want to see my resume? You want to see my record? You want to see my record of religious observance? It is going to blow anything you have out of the water. So verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew. So what he's saying in that little verse right there is that he was a Jew through And through his heritage is sublime, his family lineage is perfect. It goes back to the tribe of Benjamin. But not just this. Verse 4 again, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is not just a Jew by birth, by heritage. He lived the life. As to the law of Pharisee, do you have any idea what that meant? He not only followed the regular Jewish customs and laws, he also included all of the strict regulations put in practice by this this other group called the Pharisee. But it wasn't just mechanical. He was not a robot. He was a believer. He was a true believer. He was so zealous to protect his faith, to protect the Jewish faith, that he hunted down and killed Christians. And in accordance with all of this, he ends this way, as to righteousness under the law, as to rightness, essentially. Blameless. Blameless. He was covered. He was in good standing as far as the Jewish law was concerned, and even more, Paul was righteous. That is a good resume. That is a good name. It is his record of right standing before God and before man. Paul was blameless. And if you do not know it, that is exactly what you want to. Maybe not in terms of Jewish religious observance, okay? But what you want is a good name. What you want is a good record. You want a good life, a good resume, a good name. 
And so we look to things like where we come from, what school we went to, how fit we are, how funny we are, how much money we make, how smart we are, what accomplishments we've amassed, what job we have, how much money we give away, how beautiful we are, how much good we have done, how big our church is. We want that good record, and the list goes on and on and on. It turns out that we are all building and defending our records, our resumes, our, as Paul says it, our righteousness. Why? So that we can get in. So that we can get in with friends, with a company, with our family, with God, maybe just with ourselves. In the movie Chariots of Fire, it's about the the 1924 Olympics, and one of the main characters is a guy named Harold Abrams, an elite runner, maybe the best in all of the world at that time. But he is miserable. Have you ever seen that movie? Miserable, unhappy. Now, why? Why was he miserable? You hear it. You get, you get the understanding of why he's so miserable before one of his final races. This is what he says. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and I will look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? It is not always that intense for us, but the underlying feeling and theology is always there. We believe that our lives justify our existence. Now, I think, I think that living in the suburbs exasperates this in specific ways. It exasperates this need to build up a good resume and a name in in certain ways. And as I was thinking about it this week, three kind of rose to the top. Three things rose to the top. We believe that we need a good career record, a good financial record, and a good parenting record. These are the things that we struggle with in the suburbs. We think these things will justify us. So think about your career. We in the suburbs have a deep need to build up our careers, to constantly climb the corporate ladder. We are only content if we're being promoted. We are only content if we, are, if we have a job, if we are out of work, we feel awful about ourselves. Maybe that's the most terrifying thing any of you have ever experienced, to lose your job and then have to go in front of your wife or have to go in front of your friends and say, I lost my job. How can I do that? But it's not just for those who go to work. Let me tell you what. It is just as challenging to have a career at home. The pressure is on. I read a few, an article a few years ago about the tremendous pressure moms experience today. They can't just be moms anymore. They've got to be a lot more than that. They've got to be a mom plus a photographer plus a gourmet cook plus a craft expert plus a nutritionist. Read this way. It used to be coveting the new Mercedes and the Jones's garage. That was the thing. But now moms are on the internet showing us the birdhouse that they built using reclaimed wood and recycled wire and making us feel bad about ourselves in a whole new way. Is your career good enough? Have you climbed high enough? What about our financial record? Our money. Our money. We want to be known for how much we have, how much we make, how much we have amassed. Sure, we buy houses and cars and build 401ks, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But for so many of us, our stuff, our money is our name. 
In fact, in America, this may be the main way to set yourself apart. Look at me. Look at what I have. How much I am financially worth equates to how much I am worth existentially, spiritually. And this works, of course, in the inverse too. To the degree that I do not have what another person has, I feel awful. I feel worthless as a person. I grew up as a pastor's kid in one of the most affluent suburbs of Seattle. And even when I was a kid, I knew we did not have much. Something in me said I was not as worth it as other kids in my life. I must not be a good person. Have you done a good enough job with your money? Do you have enough salary? Do you have enough things to justify yourself? Okay, so we struggle with our career records, our financial resumes, and maybe perhaps most of all, our parenting. Parenting. This is why we move to the suburbs, right? For our kids. We want our kids to have it all. We want them to succeed in ways that we never succeeded. The problem is that, to, at least today, we believe that our kids are a perfect reflection of us. They don't just look like us. They are, in a sense, us. They are us. And so if they succeed, we succeed. And if they fail, we fail. If they are smart, we are smart. If they get bad grades, we get bad grades. If they get into a good college, yippee, then we get into a good college. If they get a good job, we get a good job. If they do not get a good job, we do not get a good job. This is not just simple parental pride. Today, in this day and age, we need their success and happiness to bring us success and happiness. That same article I quoted before said this about parenting. There is too much pressure on parents today to keep our kids away from corn syrup and bullies and industrial farmed beef while introducing them to chapter books and charcoal drawings and parasailing by the time they're six. Is your parenting good enough? Self-worth through career, money, kids. And how many more could we add to this? What do you struggle with? I struggle with a million things. Self-worth through beauty and weight loss, through the love we get from another, through our religious achievement going to church a lot of times. Peter says to you, why should you be let into heaven? Is that what you show him? Is this your resume? Is this what you recount to him? Somehow, it never seems to be enough. Paul had done it all. You know that. He'd done it all and more. He lived the life. He was truly good. The Tom Brady of Jewishness. You could live a thousand lives and not be as good as him, as Paul. And he threw it in the trash. His record was worth nothing to him. It was, as he says, his loss. And friends, there is no better news than I can give you this morning. Point two, living to get in is the problem. Living to get in is the problem. Look at verse seven. Verse seven. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Now verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Now jump to the middle of that verse. I have suffered the loss of all things 
and count them as rubbish, as rubbish. Use that, hone in on that last word, that word rubbish. That is not a great English word translation. It's just nothing, it's just not strong enough. He means the worst of the worst. He means a swear word. He means dung, poo, excrement. He means, you know what, a dirty diaper. That's the grossest thing I can think of, a dirty diaper. His list of accomplishments, all that he had done, that was a dirty diaper to him. So I took my kids camping one time, and they were potty training. That's not a good combination. And one of them, I'm not going to say who it was. I'm trying not to say who it was. One of them I brought down to the lake, right? And I didn't put a swim diaper on this child. It's a huge mistake because they jumped right in. If you've ever seen a diaper get in contact with a large body of water, it is horrifying horrifying because it expands, it grows, and it gains like 20 pounds of weight, right? That was bad enough. And then this child decided to number two in it, or it was more like number three in it, just to paint the picture, just to paint the picture. I grabbed him quickly out of the water and I started screaming for his, her, his mom. She was nowhere to be found or she did not want to be found. And his diaper was running down my arms onto my clothes and I was horrified as I somehow managed to extract him from the diaper monstrosity. Paul had the greatest name and resume. But now he counted it as a waterlogged diaper full of diarrhea. Could you do that? Could you do that with your name, with your resume, with what you have earned in this life? Now, what had happened in Paul's life? Why had he changed so dramatically. I guess it's possible that he's just saying, well, I'm not going to do the Jewish thing anymore. I'm not going to follow the law anymore. I'm going to try something else. That's actually pretty close to what we do. When something doesn't work in our life, we go try something else. Maybe he's saying that it's not just that works are bad. It's that he hadn't picked the right ones. He could build up righteousness. He just had to find it, find the right path. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that no matter what you try to do, nothing would work. Any works, any record of good deeds, any self-righteousness was worthless. And he got this from Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. That's an amazing thing to say. There's a reason that he calls his resume, his good name, his work, loss. He counted these things as a loss. They were not worth anything to him. They could not buy anything for him, heaven now or heaven later. Just think about going to a, a BMW dealership, right? You are going to buy a brand new Beamer. It is going to be awesome. You pick it all out. You design every last part. It is brand new, three miles on the odometer. And the dealer looks at you and says, great, that's awesome. How are you going to pay for it? And that's when you yell out, Bruce, bring it in. And Bruce backs up a dump truck, and he proceeds to dump two tons of garbage right onto the lot. And you say, here we go. Here's my payment. 
you're not walking away with that car. You're not driving that car off the lot, are you? We are the same and we must see it. We believe that our good works, our career, our money, our kids, they will earn us a happiness that will even get us into heaven. Paul is saying, friends, listen, they will not, they cannot. Here is the fundamental belief that got Paul into trouble, how he finally came to understand what it, was, what it meant to follow Christ. What he was doing wrong was believing that he could earn his way before a holy God. What he did wrong, what, was the, what got him into trouble was his belief that he could win God's affection, his favor, his gifts, his grace, his forgiveness, simply by showing him his measly record. But then Paul encountered Christ and he saw it. His self-righteousness was a sham. It was a facade. His self-justifying turned out to be worthless. Paul realized as he stood before the Lord, beaming with, with, with amazing brightness and power and glory, that he had been trying to act as his own Lord and Savior. He had been trying to act as his own Lord and Savior, and we do the same. And so here is the amazing answer of Christianity. It offers this to the hurting and to the broken world. You do not have just a problem with your badness but also your goodness. You do not have a problem only with the things that you do wrong, but also the things you do right. What you do right is your attempt to be your own master and Lord of the universe, and it's to keep your distance from Him. Tim Keller likes to say, I obey, therefore you must accept me. And we don't just do that with God. We do that at every level. I obey, I do what is right, I have a good name, therefore I must have a good life. I must get into earthly heaven. Tim Keller says this, We must admit that where we have put our ultimate hope and trust is in both our wrongdoing and our rightdoing. We have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get a hold of those things. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that good deeds are somehow not good. They are. Good deeds are good. You should do good things. It's when you use them to justify yourselves that you enter into the trouble because they cannot save you or make you happy. But if you believe they do, then you will sin. And so this means that only in the Christian gospel do you repent, must you repent of both your sins and the reasons for which you do anything good. Hear that again. The Christian gospel teaches that you must repent of both your sins and the reasons for which you do anything good. No other religion teaches that. And yet it is the path to joy, to count your list of good works, to count your name as rubbish. Can you do that? You're standing before Peter. He says, why should I let you in here? Why should you be let into heaven? What good have you done? And our hearts want to scream out, here is what I have done. Here are all the things. I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. I've not sinned very much. I've made some money. I've worked really hard. I have parented pretty well. And Peter says to you, if you are your own master and Lord, why do you want to get in here? 
last point this morning. How to get in without trying. How to get in without trying. Look at verse 8. It's so beautiful. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is not changing his tune. He knows this is coming. He knows that the Judaizers are going to be furious with him over this, but he is not changing his tune. He is telling them exactly what he believes. Yes, you're right. The gospel says, lay down your own righteousness. Lay down your works. You do not need to do anything to earn your way before God. It is Jesus plus nothing. That equals salvation. All you must do All you can do is trust him and make him Lord. Now, this freaked the Judaizers out. Why? They did not want to let go of their things. They they clung to it like a Linus blanket or or a life raft. But that was not their life. What they did not understand was what would happen if you finally let go of yourself, if you finally clung to Christ. You must understand this morning, everyone, I pray that you hear this morning, what happens when you finally let go and when you count your name, your resume as rubbish. You get the goodness, the resume, the name of Jesus. You get the very righteousness of God. We were never, ever, ever meant to prove ourselves. We were never meant to build up our own name, to try to be our own master and Lord. It is a tremendous burden. We were not created to earn our way before people, before ourselves, before God. So before Adam and Eve fell, God was their master and Lord, and they lived open and free, not having to defend or prove themselves. Then they ate that fruit and everything changed. What did they do? They hid, and then their first record of righteousness, of self-justification was the leaf that covered their nakedness. We were never meant to prove ourselves before God, and so God in his infinite wisdom and mercy sent Jesus Christ to do what we could not do. What happened on the cross cannot be overstated. At the cross, Jesus took our records He took our badness and our goodness that we were using to justify ourselves and he took it on himself and then he buried it in the grave. He buried it as he died. He made those things that were rubbish by becoming rubbish himself. Just think about that. That was the worst possible place anyone could be. If you wanted to have a bad name, you would go hang hang yourself up on a cross. If you wanted to be the worst of the worst, you would be hung up on a cross. Jesus became rubbish to take and kill our rubbish. Our rubbish. But then something amazing happened. As he did this, he gave us his perfect record. He had actually done it. 
He had actually amassed a perfect record. He actually had a good name. And so verse 9 says that by faith we are now found in him. This means that what we receive by faith, when we trust in him, we are clothed in his righteousness. His record, his name becomes ours. The lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, his righteousness through faith becomes our righteousness. Maybe the greatest verse in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so you die. You will die. You will not stand in front of Peter. You will stand in front of Jesus himself. The Bible says that at the end of all things, Jesus will stand over all things as supreme judge. At the end of history, it will be you and him. And you will want to try to prove yourself to him. You will want to say, here are my good works. Here are all the things. Here is my good name. But you may... You must, you get to say only one thing. I have done nothing. I am a sinner and deserve condemnation. And so I do not give you my own life. I do not give you my financial record, my career record, my parenting record, or anything. Those are as rubbish to me. What I offer to you is you. What you gave to me on the cross, what I offer to you is the life and righteousness you have given me. Now what you need to know this morning is that this is not just something that you say at the end of your life. This is the answer to your life now. The amazing news of the gospel is that we are found in Christ today. His righteousness is our righteousness. And so even in the suburbs we can stop trying to prove ourselves. Even in the suburbs, we can be freed to work and make money and parent in wise, godly, restful, and happy ways. Friends, doesn't that sound good? Entrust yourself to Jesus. Be found in Him. May the one who is named the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, may His name be yours. Let's pray. God, things are ramping up yet again. You're starting another year doing what we do. And we are going to be under tremendous pressure to prove ourselves yet again in our workplaces, in our homes, even in our church. God, I feel this myself. I want to prove myself to you and to everyone by having a bigger church, by preaching good sermons. Oh, those things are as rubbish. For every life here, for every soul here, for everyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see, may they know Jesus Christ. It is His record that they need. It is his name that they need. 
nothing else. May they rest this year and be unleashed and freed to do what you have always meant for us, to live under your care. You, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, may we be united with you this year. In Jesus' name, amen.